Hello and welcome to the Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast. I'm Amy Ross Russell. It's a real delight to be taking over from Tom Hughes as the uh, Editor's Choice podcaster. I'm really looking forward to discussing this edition's Editor's Choice article, which is Localization in Focal Epilepsy, a Practical Guide. These podcasts are a a really great opportunity to dive into a fantastic paper and explore some of the concepts they raise, but really to extract some juicy practical lessons direct from our expert authors. And today's paper is is no exception. It speaks to a neurologist's real love of localization, uh, but with also a a very practical focus uh, and some really helpful tips. And to discuss that paper, I'm joined today by Dr. Fumida Chowdhury and Professor Matthew Walker. Dr. Chowdhury is a consultant neurologist and neurophysiologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And she has a particular interest in refractory epilepsy and epilepsy surgery. Professor Walker is a professor of neurology at the Institute of Neurology, University College London, and a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital. He's also the president of the British branch of the International League Against Epilepsy. A really, really warm welcome to you both. Thank you very much for giving your time for this podcast. And I'll kick off, uh, if I may, with a question for you, Fumida. I wondered if we could just start by discussing the clinical relevance uh, of the paper and why it is so important that we localise seizures. Yes, of course. Um, So thank you for inviting us to do this podcast. Apart from semiology giving us insights into brain function, which I think is really interesting, from a clinical perspective, there are two main reasons why this is important. Firstly, a familiarity of the spectrum of semiology seen in epilepsies is crucial in being able to differentiate these from other differential diagnoses, such as non-epileptic attacks and syncope. And secondly, localization is an important part of identifying seizure onset in patients with focal epilepsy undergoing workup for epilepsy surgery, which is the main focus of our um, telemetry unit at the National. And as you know, though 70% of patients become seizure-free with epilepsy medications, there are a further 30% where they are refractory to medications. And when we say refractory, we mean adequate trials of two anti-seizure medications have not been effective. And in these patients, the chances of becoming seizure-free with further medications is about 10% and falls with each additional anti-seizure medication tried. Epilepsy surgery offers these patients a realistic chance of seizure freedom. So in the best-case scenario with epilepsy surgery, there's up to a 70% chance of seizure freedom, though this can be lower in some cases. An important part of the workup is to localise seizure onset, and localization based on semiology, which is the focus of our paper, is a very vital part of this. Thank you. That's that's fantastic. And when you when you're talking about these patients, are they primarily people with pure focal epilepsy, or are they people who are secondary generalizing to generalized seizures where you're looking at their onset? So when we're talking about resective epilepsy surgery, yes, we're we're talking about patients who have refractory focal epilepsy. Now, we have a range of patients. Some of the patients may suffer from just focal aware or unaware seizures, but yeah, in a a large proportion of them, there will be secondary generalised seizures. Um, And those are the patients who actually are are more at risk of SUDEP. And we know in the refractory population that that's about 1% a year. So it's it's not insignificant, but um, so we're, we're we're mainly talking about focal epilepsies, both you know just focal aware or unaware, but also secondary generalised. 
Thank you. And Matthew, how accurate is the semiology compared to other techniques with fantastic imaging and intracranial EEGs? Is is the semiology really that important in, in localization? Uh, yes, it is. It's a, it's a, it's a critical component um, and it's, it needs to be taken with all the other investigations. Um, so, for example, if you see a lesion on a scan, it doesn't mean that the seizure is necessarily beginning there. Uh, and we very often um, can see uh, lesions or things on scans and, and find that seizures are in fact, arising from, from elsewhere. So you need to confirm, even if you see a lesion, that the seizures are going to be arising from that area. Um, and uh, when you don't have a lesion or don't have uh, anything on the scan, then semiology may be one of the prime indicators of where the seizures are beginning and how they're spreading. And I think people think, well, you have EEG, surely that's going to tell you uh, or give you a lot of information. But very often in seizures, uh, the EEG change we see may be very late. It may be obscured by artifact. Um, by the time we see an EG change, it seems to be large parts of the, the brain. And, and very often, when, when we're looking at the video telemetry, for example, the semiology gives us the best clue uh, as to where the seizures may be uh, beginning and, and how they're spreading. But then it has to, as I say, it has to be then seen in context with the other investigations that we do, including the MRI or other imaging such as PET scanning, and then also other things such as the neuropsychology, uh, which can give us an indication of which areas of the brain are not fun functioning adequately. And then uh, if we're still not clear exactly where the seizures are beginning when we're doing a, a, um, considering epilepsy surgery, then electrodes have to be placed into the brain um, to record where the, where the seizures are coming from. And we can only do a limited number of electrodes into the brain. We can't pepper the brain with, with electrodes. And so we have to have a good idea, we have to have a hypothesis uh, as to where the seizures are coming from and how they're spreading. And, and that really often comes from uh, the semiology. Thank you. That's really helpful. Just briefly, you mentioned PET-CT there as one of the imaging choices. And I noticed in a couple of the cases uh, that you that you use in the paper, that's the the clue to where the, the focus is or, or certainly combined in the semiology, that's the clue. Um, is that standard workup or is that just for people who you're thinking about surgery or you're very convinced is th that there is a focal component? So uh, that's where that's where we're considering surgery. And we usually use it both because of the exposure of radiation and also because of the costs uh, in people where uh, there is less certainty. So if we have a, a, a very obvious lesion on the MRI scan and uh, the semiology and the EEG and everything points to a, that particular area and the neuropsychology, uh, then we wouldn't need it. But if there's any doubt, then it, it's another thing that can add, uh, as can something called um, ictal spect, which is... Uh, where we can actually look at blood flow during uh, the seizure itself. Uh, so that's a, a, a form of imaging where the person has an uh, injection um, uh, just as soon as the seizure begins, and then the, uh, that can give us an idea of, of blood flow during that particular period, um, and we can then scan at a slightly later time uh, to get an idea of where that area is. So there are other modalities that we can use, but those are usually reserved for people uh, in whom we don't get an, uh, a good idea of where the seizures are beginning from uh, the more standard investigations. Thank you. That's, that's fantastic. For me, I'm going to come back to you. You mentioned in the introduction uh, some specific terms, and particularly I'm thinking of the symptomatogenic 
zone and the epileptogenic term. And for uh, for people who've got the paper to reference, these are in Table One, uh, which outlines the cortical zones defined in pre-surgical evaluation. Could you just tell us exactly what you mean by symptomatogenic and epileptogenic, and what their clinical relevance is? Yeah, sure. So as you say, we've we've defined a number of cortical zones in in Table One, but I think the two most important ones within those, in terms of localization are the epileptogenic zone, which is the area of cortex that um, is necessary for the generation of seizures and needs to be removed to render patients seizure-free after surgery. And that's really what we're, we're interested in when we're, when we're localising seizures and offering a patient a resection because we want to give them the maximal chance of seizure freedom. Um, the symptomatogenic zone is the area of the cortex which, when activated by an epileptiform discharge, produces the initial ictal symptoms um, so the semiology of the seizure, the, the clinical manifestation, um, and this is usually an area of eloquent cortex, so where when it's activated or deactivated, you would see a change in function, whether that may be motor phenomena or language or um, loss of awareness or often subjective um, symptoms, so auras. Um, so that's really, when we, when we talk about semiology, we're talking about the symptomatogenic zone, which is not necessarily the same as the epileptogenic zone, but it's usually very closely linked with it, which is why it's helpful to, to know about in terms of working out where the epileptogenic zone is. Um, and as, as Matthew says, it often if we did have to proceed to, to further invasive investigations, it hel- helps with our hypothesis and our implantation strategy. Um, and I just wonder if it's worth mentioning at this point that a lot of the um, information that we have about um, symptomatogenic zones is from kind of intracranial studies where, as well as recording and seeing which areas are activated during a seizure and what what symptoms there are Um, also gives us the opportunity to do something called electrical stimulation where we pass small electrical currents through those electrodes um, and then that can show us the underlying function of of that area that we're stimulating so that ties into the symptomatogenic zone. Yeah absolutely and um the other part of the introduction that I just wanted to, to focus in on to, to put this in context is um, you describe two phenomena with seizure propagation. You talk about a, a slow and a fast uh, propagation and how they spread. Matthew, I wonder if you could just talk us through what's actually happening in the brain with each of those and, and what the correlates are maybe on an EEG or what we'd expect to see. Uh, yeah, so the, uh, this is very important, actually. So uh, seizures tend to spread in two specific ways. So uh, when a seizure begins, which is the excessive and synchronous electrical activity in, in a specific area, it then engages uh, areas that are next door, so the, the surrounding area, um, and eventually those areas will begin to start, start firing as well. And it does that in, in quite a slow fashion. Um, and you can see this when uh, you're looking at somebody with, for example, a Jacksonian seizure, a Jacksonian march where the seizure will begin, for example, in the hand area of the motor cortex and then slowly uh, spread um, up the uh, arm and then and down the leg and into the face. Um, and you can actually see the, the progression, uh, which is why it's called this sort of march. Um, and it may take um, quite a, a, you know, a number of um, minutes or so to actually go to traverse the, the motor cortex. So it's a very slow spread in that, that way. But there's also, um, when an area of the brain starts to fire excessively, uh, there are also longer connections with other areas, um, which are through uh, axons, and you get quite fast transmission 
then to other areas, which then can be engaged. So you, you get this quite slow local spread, uh, but you can get quite rapid engagement of areas of the brain that may be um, reasonably far from uh, the area where the seizure begins. Um, and typically, most seizures, when they begin in a specific area, will spread in most people in very similar ways. So you see similar semiologies between people depending upon where the seizure begins, which is what enables us to give us uh, to have a reasonable idea of where the seizure may be beginning when, when we um, have the semiology uh, at hand. Now, how this relates to the EEG is even more complicated because, interesting enough, when we're looking at an EEG, what we're looking at is the uh, signal that an area receives rather than a signal that the area is generating. So most of the EEG signal is because of these excitatory postsynaptic potentials, which is from the sort of glutamatergic transmission into a specific area. Um, and the cell may be receiving lots of, the cells may be receiving lots of signal, uh, but they may not be firing themselves. So that area may be quiescent. Um, and after a certain threshold, that area will then start to fire. So we see spread of EEG signal much more rapidly uh, than the uh, clinical, uh, uh, the actual clinical spread, which is due to the activation of the neurons. So, sort of local spread and then patterns of recruitment. So, patterns of uh, of propagation as well as patterns related to the original onset. Exactly. So, you get um, this local spread and then you have more distant spread. And as I say, the EEG signal, you know, the spread from the EEG signal looks more much more rapid because a whole load of areas will be receiving the signal from an area that's firing rapidly. But those areas may not be engaged. They may not actually be firing. Uh, and actually when they start to become engaged, when they start to fire, is often some time after they start receiving the signal. It's like, a, it's like somebody hammering at a door until the door uh, caves in. So it's like this area is firing away, hammering at that door uh, in other areas, and those areas are resisting. Um, and then suddenly uh, they give way and they start in, uh, being involved in the actual seizure activity itself. That's really clear. Thank you. That's really helpful. I thought we might just spend a bit of time on a few areas of the brain. Um, there's a fantastic uh, image, figure one, for those who have reference to the paper, where you've, you've beautifully identified sort of specific things for different areas of the brain in, in four images. So for those people with an office, I think this is a, a great one to pin up on the wall and, and for, for others perhaps to have a photo on your phone for, for reference because it's a really great image that will help to just identify those origin points. If we started uh, with the frontal lobe and just thought about specific characteristics of the frontal lobe, Fumida, I wonder if you could just talk us through what you'd expect to see in a, in a classic frontal lobe seizure or things that are characteristic of those. Yeah, of course. And I think before before we do that, I think I sh we should acknowledge um, um, Dr. Ben Watley, who was our fellow at the time, um, and he really helped with drawing that diagram. So um, thanks to Ben as well. Um, but in in general, um, frontal lobe seizures, um, they do have some overlapping features, but the actual semiology will depend on which part of the frontal lobe is involved in the symptomatogenic zone. Um, so in general, they tend to um, cluster 
they can have be prominent vocalization they most commonly occur from sleep although they can occur in the day and motor features are quite prominent um, however the actual kind of motor features we see will depend on which which part of the frontal lobe is involved so for example if um, if it's the primary motor cortex then um, as Matthew described earlier you might see a Jacksonian march where you see the seizure propagating through the primary motor cortex and if, it, if the movements start in the leg that might indicate it's more mesial or the, and if it's the face then more laterally um, and that is very that's a very very localizing type of seizure and is as, as you'd expect from the contralateral motor cortex so the clonic movements are contralateral to the hemisphere of the brain involved um, if it comes from slightly more anterior kind of regions such as SMA then then tonic um, features are more prominent um, and these seizures are usually not very lateralizing as often you see asymmetric kind of bilateral tonic features and then going even more anteriorly there may be more complex motor signs such as hyperkinetic movements um, or grimacing or automatisms um, sometimes if it's the orbitofrontal lesion there may just be a behavioral arrest like a dialectic seizure um, and then if frontal eye fields are involved, then you may see um, eye or head version, which again would be contralateral to the um, to the side of onset. Thank you. That's really, really great. And um, Matthew, there's one uh, example that you used that struck me because it was a an example used as a top mistake in one of our ABNT training days last year, which was the example of, um, of bilateral motor activity with retained awareness, which I think a lot of people uh, might think shouldn't be possible. How is that possible that you can have bilateral motor activity and still retain awareness? Um, well, it's very possible because the uh, areas that actually uh, generate the motor activity uh, are different from the areas that may be important for consciousness. Um, and generally what, what occurs in seizures is that by the time you get spread to the uh, other side of the brain, so to, to uh, both hemispheres, uh, the seizures also engaged uh, those areas um, that are necessary for unconsciousness uh, and so person has lost consciousness as well as having the bilateral motor movements. But that doesn't have to necessarily be so. And especially in frontal lobe seizures, uh, where they're starting near um, the motor cortex or where they're connected uh, intimately with the motor cortex, it's possible to spread, to spread um, but to the motor cortex and bilaterally quite rapidly before you start to engage areas of uh, the brain that are in, uh, important for consciousness. And so people may have retained awareness uh, with what looks like a, a tonic-clonic seizure. Um, it's, it's not so common, but it's an important thing not to get caught out on. Um, and, you know, I've certainly seen people who've been referred to me where it's been thought that the seizures they're having must be psychogenic seizures because they're aware during the seizure and they're aware of the of the bilateral clonic movements. Um, and in, indeed, with a number of people with frontal lobe seizures, uh, they may have that aw initial awareness before uh, they lose um, consciousness. And that often gives us a bit of a clue as to where the seizure may be beginning because if it's uh, beginning, for example, in the temporal lobe and... Uh, you'd expect them to lose consciousness well before they start to go and have the, the tonic-clonic components. Whilst if it's in the frontal cortex, it's possible to have retained awareness, at least in the initial part of the seizure, uh, prior to uh, with the tonic-clonic uh, components prior to losing consciousness. Thank you. And you specifically mentioned the differentiation with dissociative seizures or non-epileptic attacks. 
in those, I think I think I'm right in saying that in some of those you might have a normal EEG as well. So that the ones with bilateral motor activity with retained awareness. If you've got a normal EEG and you're not sure, how do we make sure we're not misattributing those seizures to uh, to dissociative events? And how can we confidently rule that out? Do we use imaging or, or EEG? Yeah, so that's, that's a, an exceptionally good question. So uh, the one of the problems with EEG is that by the time you start to have significant muscle activity, uh, and generally during a, a tonic-clonic seizure or during a lot of the frontal lobe seizures where you may get hypermotor activity, by the time you have lots of muscle activity, it obscures the EEG. Um, and w uh, that will happen very early on in the seizure because with the frontal lobe seizures, they tend to spread very rapidly. They tend to have a, a very early motor component. Um, and with a lot of people that um, have uh, frontal lobe seizures, uh, with, when we're doing video telemetry, even though we may put many electrodes on the head, more electrodes than you do in a standard EEG, um, uh, we still can't pick up uh, any abnormal activity. And I have to say, you know, uh, one of the most useful things is a video. Um, and I think one of the, the big advances in epilepsy care is the fact that people have videos on their phones and can video events. Um, and I think it's generally most uh, people with certainly a specialist interest in epilepsy would be able to distinguish uh, the video of a seizure from uh, videos of, of psychogenic attacks, uh, but not always. Um, and then what we're sometimes left with is, is trying to see whether how stereotypical different episodes are. Um, and if we really get stuck, then there are other modalities that can be used. Uh, but uh, I can't think of a case where we've actually used them. So you could use, for example, ictal spec to try and see whether you have um, uh, um, abnormal blood flow that's happening at the time of event. But I cannot think of a, a circumstance uh, where we've had to do that, because I think in nearly all cases, uh, just having uh, a trained eye look at the particular episode, it's possible to distinguish psychogenic seizures from epileptic seizures. Thank you. And just uh, for the benefit of our listeners who are still training their eyes, what are the key things you're looking for to differentiate there? I mean, the, one of the, I think the important things about seizures, as I said is, earlier on, is that uh, they do tend to uh, spread and engage areas uh, in fairly uh, typical fashions. So there's certain motor phenomena that are much more typical for seizures than, than psychogenic attacks. Uh, so we can see things like uh, posturing, certain forms of posturing, scissoring of the legs, cycling uh, movements of the legs. Um, and those sorts of um, movements we see quite frequently in seizures. And we often see them in, in a very defined sequence in any particular person so that when they next have their seizure, we see those particular aspects. But also the way that seizures tend to spread, as we spoke before, you can try and, um, and I think as, as, as Fermida said right at the beginning, you know, having a good understanding of semiology and the types of seizures that you can see gives you a very good idea of how they spread and how they progress. And seizures do spread and progress and they spread and progress over time. They evolve uh, and then obviously they stop and there's a post-ictal state. Uh, and that's very different from many of the psychogenic attacks that we see that tend to stop and start that tend to involve uh, movements that aren't uh, a sort of logical progression of the, of the seizure itself. And then there may be other clues uh, during the psychogenic uh, attacks, uh, such as things like uh, eyes held tight. Um, there are certain movements that are more common in psychogenic attacks than, than 
uh, in um, epileptic seizures. Uh, and there are a number of reviews, very good reviews out there that, that uh, list those particular features. So I'm not going to go through those in any particular detail. Um, but I, overall, I think one of the important things is really just to listen to patients and listen to what they have to say and how they describe things. Um, and once you've seen many patients with uh, epilepsy and seizures, and once you've seen many seizures with videos uh, on uh, phones, or, or they're in fact they're now available on the internet, and um, the International League Against Epilepsy has a site where videos are available, and their videos as well contained uh, within our article. Um, once you've you know if you've had a look at these and you've seen many seizures, you begin to become very familiar with the with the different types of seizures. But hand on heart, there are some instances where you just do not know. Um, and there are some cases where it's still unclear. And even the best um, you know, epileptologists that there are, even people who are you know, the most experienced people at video telemetry still sometimes, we just have to say, we think it's this, but um, hand on heart, we can't say definitely. I think that's great, great for me to... <laughs> Yeah, I think I just totally confer with, with Matthew on that. It can be very, very difficult. But as Matthew said, there are some features that can help us. It's not always straightforward. Yeah, thank you. I, I don't want to get sidetracked on, on the other other topics, but it's it's very helpful to know that the experts still find it hard. Moving on to temporal lobe things, again, I wondered if, uh, Familia, you could talk us through some of the key characteristics uh, that we see in temporal lobe seizures. Um, and for those who are uh, looking at the paper at the same time, again, this is table two, compares the, the features of the frontal lobe and the temporal lobe really nicely. And that's a, another good image to, uh, to have as a reference point. Uh, if you could talk us through the features of temporal lobe epilepsy, um, that would be fantastic. Yeah, so I, I won't go through the kind of features from from table two, but I think um, it, it's important to emphasise that temporal seizures, the main features that we see are loss of awareness is common, automatisms are common, um, and auras are common. And the auras that we see um, may help us to differentiate from a mesial or a lateral onset. Mesiotemporal epilepsies are, are, are much more common. And so the kind of auras that patients might describe with temporal lobe seizures include epigastric auras, um, psychic auras, gustatory and olfactory auras, and sometimes somatosensory auras. Um, and that those features might tend to indicate a more mesial onset. Um, if a patient describes an auditory aura, either a simple auditory aura or um, a complex auditory aura, then this would point to to the seizures possibly arising from either the primary auditory cortex, Heschel's gyrus, or auditory association areas, although it's not always quite so straightforward because of the way that seizures propagate. Um, autonomic features are also quite common in, in um, temporal lobe seizures, particularly medial temporal seizures. And is aura specific to temporal lobe epilepsy, or can you have auras from seizures arising elsewhere? No, so they're, they're not specific. And, and actually, to be honest, the, the, the very common temporal lobe aura of epigastric rising is actually due to involvement of the insula, which is highly connected with, um, with the mesiotemporal regions. So, um, so but yes, yeah, so they're, they're not, they're common, but they're not completely specific to, to temporal lobe. Yeah, the, the insula sounds really hard because it's connected to everything. <laughs> do, you, do you ever take the insula out? 
or bits of it out? So in, you can do insular surgery. It can be very challenging due to its eloquency and also um, it's proximal to kind of vessels, kind of MCA type vessels. So it is, it is a much harder surgical target. But actually, even though it's involved quite a lot, in it's not usually the onset. So the onset would much more likely to be a mesotemporal onset, which is a much more, um, in terms of receptive surgery, that's a, a much kind of easier target. Fantastic, thank you. You mentioned that parietal lobe seizures are are very uh, very rare by comparison. Um, Matthew, do you think that's an underestimate, or do you think that's just because there's different pathology in different parts of the brain? Uh, I think it's a mixture of the two. I mean, it certainly seems that the temporal lobes seem to be particularly susceptible to uh, seizures, and there may be reasons for that. Uh, they're important for memory, and they may just be a bit more plastic uh, than other areas of the brain, and so more susceptible to change. Um, but overall, uh, although um, parietal lobe seizures are thought to be rare, I think they are much commoner. And the reason that we underestimate it is that the parietal lobes um, are often intimately connected or very well connected with other areas, including the frontal cortex and the temporal lobes. Uh, and the parietal lobe seizures can be great mimickers. They can look like frontal lobe seizures or they can look like temporal lobe seizures. And I think some of the people that we think have temporal lobe seizures or, or frontal lobe seizures um, may they may be beginning in in the in the parietal lobe, um, and the other the other important thing is that you know whether areas of of cortex and and Fumita made this point earlier on, um, you know there may be areas of cortex that are relatively silent. So um, you know if you stimulate, not much happens. If a seizure begins initially in that area, not a lot happens. And it's not until the seizures spread that you then actually get the manifestation. And that can certainly occur within the parietal lobe where you can get spread from areas of the parietal lobe that may have uh, sort of maybe have subtle cognitive effects that may not be very obvious to the person who's experiencing the seizure or to those around them. Um, And it's not until it spreads to other areas is the the seizure very obvious to the person or to those uh, watching. So I think it's a, I think generally it is uh, the number of people who have parietal lobe uh, epilepsy is probably an underestimate. Thank you. And you described some particularly strange sort of manifestations, the uh, kinetopsia and and distorted image and things like that. Are they seizure specific or can they happen with with lesions in, in the sort of parietal association areas as well? Um, no, they, they, so they they do occur in uh, parietal association areas. That's where you start to see get things of distortion of body uh, image, or uh, you get uh, also typically uh, odd sensations like uh, you can get vertiginous sensations. Um, you can get strange feelings of uh, the, the size of your limbs. You can get um, feelings of being outside yourself. Um, looking at yourself. So these are all um, aspects um, and they're all to do with sensory processing. Um, so in a way that, you know, it's quite um, logical that they're related to seizures that begin uh, in the parietal lobes. Um, but in a similar way to the frontal lobes, you know, they're, they're, they're different areas of, of the parietal lobes and different areas of the frontal lobes. Some of them are very simple, like primary sensory and the primary motor cortex, where the, the seizure is very obvious. You get a jerk or you get a, um, a, a sensation in the arm or leg that maybe uh, march in the same way that you get with a Jacksonian march. Uh, but then as you move away from those sorts of areas, you start to get m- uh, more complex uh, neocortical areas that are to do with sensory processing or, or to do with um, 
motor programs, really. Um, and so you can get more complex things, as, as, as Fermita says, you know, you move further forward in the frontal cortex, you, you can start to get these cycling uh, or bizarre motor behaviors. Um, and similarly, when you move uh, away from the uh, primary sensory cortex, you can you start to get, you involve higher order processing where you start to get these very odd sensory phenomena, such as, say, looking at your feeling that you're looking at yourself or outside yourself. Uh, or distortions um, of space and, and even uh, time. So uh, I've certainly had one person who's with parietal lobe epilepsy um, who just felt that time just slowed down. He had no real concept of, of how time was moving. Um, so, you know, you get these quite complicated sensory phenomena that, as you move into higher order cortex. Thank you. For me, very briefly, I think on the occipital lobe, presumably occipital lobe are always visual phenomena. And if you're thinking about episodic visual phenomena, how do we distinguish those between migrainous aura, for example, and, and seizures? Yeah, sure. So, um, of course, as we've, as we've kind of mentioned before, that there are there is going to be parts of the occipital lobe that are not eloquent. So, you know, it will, we'll only get visual symptoms once more eloquent areas and symptomatogenic zone is involved. But, um, you know, in 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 general, if, it, if the primary um, exhibital areas are involved, then there would be simple visual aura. So um, flash, flashing lights, sometimes patients describe coloured circles um, or other shapes. Um, and as you say, they, they, they're, they're, we need to try and differentiate these from migraine. So with epileptic seizures, you wouldn't generally see the kind of scintillating fortification spectra that you would think typical of a migraine. The other very helpful thing is that obviously the, the time, the length, seizures are usually brief. So um, we wouldn't expect that a visual aura would last for more than a couple of minutes or so. Whereas with migraine, the um, symptoms can be quite prolonged um, as, as, other, as kind of the migraine aura. So I think for both the nature, but the time the timing is also important as well. Thanks, that's really helpful. You mentioned in the lateralizing section, the last clonic jerk, which I'd not come across as a, as a lateralizing feature before. Is that helpful if you've got a, a patient and you walk in halfway through their seizure? Is it, is it clinically helpful to have a look at the last jerk or is that only in the context of other focal signs? So in, in a focal epilepsy, it, it is a good lateralizing sign. So all the all the signs that we've kind of mentioned in our paper have a positive predictive value of greater than 80%. Um, and a last clonic jerk is a good lateralizing sign. So even if you miss the, the first part of the seizure, I think it is quite, it's quite helpful um, in, in a focal epilepsy. So I just wanted to add to that, actually, just to be wary um, when you're taking a history uh, from people describing uh, left and right, uh, it's my experience that most witnesses get that wrong 50% of the time. That's very helpful to know. I'd have trusted that. <laughs> Similarly for head turns and posturing as well. <laughs> yeah. So the video a, is a video, really key. A video is, is, yeah, is more reliable than, than history, I think, because you can imagine that it's quite stressful for a relative when they're witnessing a seizure. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good practical point. And reflex seizures, you mentioned four types, uh, the most obvious being photosensitive epilepsy. But in eating-induced epilepsy uh, or musicogenic epilepsy. What do you think the mechanism is for, for triggering the seizure? So, so I think that's a really uh, fascinating question. I mean, we know with um, photosensitivity that obviously you're um, engaging uh, the area of the brain where the um, occipital lobes 
um, and that at a certain frequency, uh, then obviously you start to induce this sort of hyperexcitability. Um, and we certainly have had evidence. Um, so uh, when people are engaging in, for example, cognitive tasks, uh, that we start to see greater number of uh, spikes, so epileptal abnormalities coming from the temporal lobe. Um, and so the, the assumption is that, you know, to my mind, it may be that quite a lot of uh, seizures are or have a reflex component, uh, that when you're engaging that area in a certain activity or excessive activity, uh, that um, the area, you know, then starts to break away from uh, the uh, inhibitory control and then, and then the, the seizure happens. I think probably for, for large parts of the um, uh, brain, it's not absolutely clear what those triggering factors are. Um, but again, it's important to listen to patients. Uh, they will often describe things that they, uh, triggers that they have. I mean, there's obviously non-specific triggers like stress, but sometimes will people describe quite specific triggers. Um, and it's important not just to um, you know, pass over that and ignore it because patients, I think, are often have the greatest insight uh, into their own disease. Um, and what I think probably happens in the musicogenic uh, epilepsies or the eating epilepsies is you start during the, that process or hearing the, the piece of music, you start to engage a network um, and that you start to excite that network and that that network then becomes hyper excitable and breaks away from, from control, the control. And it's quite, musicogenic epilepsy is quite interesting because uh, some people it's very specific uh, pieces of music. For other people, it may be um, uh, specific types of music. I had somebody who uh, found that any R&B music, for example, uh, would, would, would set off their seizures and somebody else um, where there was only rather specific pieces of music. Um, and I think that with the, a lot of the musicogenic epilepsies, it's not only uh, the music itself, uh, but also the emotional uh, aspect of that music so it's the sort of emotion that that will um, induce in, in you so it's, it, I think it's not just um, hearing it or um, hearing it or recognizing the piece I think it's also linked in with a whole network that involves the limbic system and emotion. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, finally just uh, getting towards the end do you think there are, are major pitfalls that clinicians should be aware of uh, for example do we misattribute prominent signs that might not be the first ones and, and look in the wrong place or do we look for for phenomena that might be postictal in nature what are the the key things to avoid doing if you're looking for localization well I mean I think it's really important to remember when you're trying to localize that it's the very first sign that's going to be most localizing. I mean, although that may in itself be propagation from the actual onset to the symptomatogenic zone, but it's going to be the most localizing sign you have. So exploring with patients what their auras is, is, is very crucial. I think if they have an aura um, and looking for the kind of earliest sign is really important. I think it's important to remember that a lot of the brain is not eloquent. So you may be, we may be, um, you know, what we're seeing is, is probably propagation in, in a lot of cases and also I think I mean I, I think just really paying attention to what the patient says but also remembering that actually a lot of auras are very difficult for patients to describe they're really hard to put into words um, but yeah just I think listening carefully being aware that that you know a lot of the brain is not eloquent and you may be maybe looking at propagation even even if you are looking at the earliest signs. Thank you Matthew anything that you would add to that? 
No, I think that was a very good summary of, of particular uh, pitfalls. Um, I mean, I think one of the important things is also to get, obviously, very accurate witness descriptions when, when you're looking at seizures. And the other important thing for us is to make sure that when we're recording seizures, for example, in video telemetry, that that is the habitual seizure that a person has. Um, uh, very often we're reducing drugs. Um, it's a different situation. People may be under stress. And we want to make sure that we're recording the habitual events. Uh, and I've seen circumstances, for example, where um, people have been dismissed uh, as having psychogenic seizures because those have been the things that have been recorded uh, when they've been admitted to video telemetry units. And being admitted to a video telemetry unit is a, a stressful event that may bring on psychogenic seizures. Um, and nobody had really spoken to them to find out whether those were the habitual events and had missed the fact that they had also uh, epileptic seizures, uh, just that those were not recorded. Uh, and it's much more common when somebody's admitted uh, and you're not reducing medications. Uh, if somebody has psychogenic seizures and epileptic seizures, it's much more common to record the psychogenic seizures than the epileptic seizures. And similarly, whenever uh, I receive videos, you have to be careful because uh, very often it's the videos of the psychogenic seizures that are more common than the epileptic seizures and people who have mixtures of both. That's that's a really helpful and really important practical point. Um, and I think we'll, we'll finish on that. Um, this is an opportunity to inspire as well as educate. And I just wondered before we finished, if I could ask you both what it was that attracted you to epilepsy as a subspecialty and whether there are any particular uh, things about it that you'd like to uh, use to sell to our trainee audience. For me, I'll go you first. Okay. Um, so actually, that's it's actually quite a tricky question to answer. Um, no, but um, I think I was drawn into it because it's such a, epilepsy is a really diverse condition um, and that makes it kind of quite interesting as well as I quite, I like the fact that, you know, patients with epilepsy present at all ages. It's also very treatable compared to some, some other neurological conditions which attracted me into it. And I also really enjoy the overlap with neurophysiology and I think our paper probably highlights that quite well. But also what's really fascinating is I think seizures and seizure semiology really gives us an insight into kind of normal brain functioning and and I, you know all those aspects together i think probably drew me into into the field i think for me it's, it would be very similar but I, i'd like to add just a a couple of things so um i think any field of neurology you're drawn into by the the uh, mentors that you have um and uh, you know we've been very fortunate I've been very fortunate to have had, you know, mentors such as uh, Simon Chauvin and John Duncan and Leigh Sander and David Fish and uh, Sheila Smith. Um, and uh, it's they that often um, encourage you and, and bring you into a specific field. Uh, and the other thing is that I, one of my first SHO jobs in, well, my first SHO job in neurology was at the actual, at the Chalfont Centre. Um, and just to see people with just such devastating epilepsy, it destroys lives. Um, and also, as, as Fumida says, you know, people die from it as well. It's a really serious condition. Uh, and about a third of people are not adequately controlled on medication. Uh, and it's just a, a really strong desire to do whatever I can to help those people uh, with this uh, absolutely uh, devastating or potentially devastating disease. Thank you both. Those are fantastically inspiring and really good reasons to, to choose epilepsy. And you certainly both have uh, inspired many more people. 
to do so, uh, not just with this review, but I think with all of your work that you do. Thank you both so much uh, for your time today. Thank you for uh, engaging with all of the questions and giving us some fabulous answers. Um, and thank you again for a really wonderful review that really speaks to the, the core uh, things that everybody loves about neurology in, in localization, um, but with a real practical focus. I would encourage everyone to, to look at a paper that's far more in it than we've been able to cover in the podcast uh, and in particular to look at, uh, at the figures, the tables and also the supplementary videos which really help to bring, bring the stories to life. Thanks very much for listening to the Practical Neurology Editor's Choice podcast. I'm Amy Ross-Russell and I'm looking forward to the next one already. If you are too, then please subscribe on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and the podcast will come direct to your device with each edition. We'd also really like to hear from you with any feedback, so please get in touch through our social media channels, Twitter feed, uh, or leave us a review on the Practical Neurology podcast page on iTunes. I'd like to end with final thanks to our absolutely fabulous uh, guests, Dr. Fermida Chowdhury and Professor Matthew Walker, and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much.